is very high energy. She loves people, but especially one of the breed traits of these breeds, she is super loyal. Like, really, really loyal. Like, follow me to the bathroom loyal. <laughs> Except she won't actually come to the bathroom because she doesn't like the tile in the bathroom, how it clicks on her nails. But she'll stand at the door. And then I'll close the door, and then she will lay down right outside the door. When I'm home, she will follow me around just about every move I make. If I get up and go somewhere, she runs into that room. Uh, she uh, sticks close most of the day. She'll, she'll lay in my office if I'm working at home, in my home office. Uh, if I come home from being gone, she's right at the door, waiting for me. <laughs> you know, now, now, I'm sure the fact that I'm the main source of treats has something to do with that. I mean, you know, but beyond that, she's a super loyal dog. Very different than when I was merely staff for the cat, when we had a cat. As you know, dogs have masters, cats have staff. And um, I was definitely the cat's butler. But Nola, she's loyal. She wants to be where I am. She wants to stay close. In fact, one might even say, Nola likes to abide. Remember we started John chapter 2? John warned us that sin wants to turn our desires against us and trap us with the desires of our flesh and our eyes and the pride of life. And these pursuits of worldliness, of course, are in direct opposition to God. We can avoid falling prey to these sins by being sure to orient our lives according to God's will, which we are reminded primarily comes to us in the scriptures, sometimes directly, Sometimes through the application of principles and wisdom and that sort of thing. But the thing is, following God is not meant to be some mystery or like try to confuse you or trick you or anything. It's something that we can do with the Spirit's empowerment each day. Following God's will enables us to win then that battle against the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And then we learn that there's another threat, not one that's waging war against us internally like those desires, but externally. That threat is an external, ongoing threat that requires our diligence to not be led astray. And that is the threat of false teachers, false teaching, and deceptive leaders. And we saw last week how John tells us that before the Antichrist, capital A, the end times one that we call Antichrist, there will be plenty of lowercase, small a, Antichrist, who will come to deceive people, lead people away from the true Savior, Jesus our Lord. But we also learn that through God's Spirit and His Word, we have everything we need to avoid deception and be people who stand for the truth in the midst of an increasingly truth-hostile world. Now, John's not done yet. One more issue in dealing with those who would try and deceive us. John is going to finish this chapter by expounding on the role of the Holy Spirit and how that is connected to one of John's favorite topics, the topic of abiding in Jesus. But he starts by talking to us about how the Spirit is going to teach us all things. Let's look at verse 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So we're still on that topic. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. So verse 26 tells us we're still on this false teacher subject. And that's going to help us to mean, understand what he's
he's talking about in verse 27 because that gives us some context. Because verse 27 is one of those verses that over the course of many years, many well-meaning teachers, preachers, and other people have unfortunately like battered into the ground and twisted and just done all sorts of horrible things with it. And it's primarily misused in two ways. Either to claim we should understand more than we do, or to claim that we do not need any teachers. So let's look at the first idea there, the first part of 27. That because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we have no need of teachers. Right? He says you have no need of anyone to teach you. Now what does John mean by that? It clearly cannot mean we never need spiritual teachers or instruction. It can't mean that. Because if we did not ever need spiritual teachers or instruction, why would Paul say in Ephesians that one of the things the Spirit gives us is teachers? Paul says the Spirit gives us teachers. So clearly what John means can't mean that we don't ever need any teachers. Or why would Hebrews 5, chapter, or verse 12 say, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, oh wait, so apparently they ought to be teachers, so there must be a need for teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. They weren't ready to be teachers because they hadn't quite got the picture yet. Now to understand what he means by you don't need anyone to teach you here, let's think about what false teachers do. They claim to have a newer, better, or often special understanding or connection to God. That's what false teachers do. Remember, back in verse 24, he reminded us to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, which of course means the message of salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that was proclaimed to them and to us. But see, the false teacher is going to come around like some late you know, old late night infomercial. But wait, there's more! Right? Get this exclusive deal, but you've got to call in the next 30 minutes. You can only get it here. Right? You can just picture, oh, what was that guy's name? The guy with the black hair and the mustache, and the old ShamWow guy. You know, ShamWow one hand, cocaine in the other, right? <laughs> understand 
Verse 27, second part, about the Spirit's anointing teaching us about everything. This is it. The Spirit will teach us everything. Now, everything here. Now, normally I'm one of those guys, okay, I realize that I'm kind of a biblical literalist. So when, you know, it says all, I assume it means all. When it says everything, I assume it means everything. But sometimes it, it just can't mean that in the greater context of Scripture. Everything here clearly cannot mean all things. It can't mean everything. It can't mean the Spirit's going to teach me everything. I know this for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, because in college I had a class called Cal 215. And in Cal 215, we came upon the bane of my existence in higher mathematics. Torsions. Torsions describe mathematically how a plane moves in three dimensions as it spirals along a line. Yeah. I just like the gift. I just thought it was so cool. We didn't have when I was in college, we didn't have these kind of things. Okay. This this is the math. No, 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 this is very practical math because this is the math, part of the math in a way that is behind one of car enthusiasts' favorite subjects, torque. Torque is a result of torsions. Torque is, you know, the power of turning things. Torsion explains how that power transfers, you know, as your drive shaft starts up and this end at the end, you know, the transmission starts to turn. Technically, torsions explain how that power transfers down the drive shaft. The point is, the math of torsions is ridiculously bizarre. And my grade was reminiscent of this. I can promise you that I prayed for the Spirit to reveal all mysteries related to the calculus of torsions in Cal 215. And you know what? No insights were forthcoming. <laughs> and my grade reflected the lack of assistance from God's Spirit in Cal 215. So everything here in verse 27 clearly does not mean everything in that sense. Everything also clearly cannot mean all things related to Christ, doctrine, the Bible, etc. Now, do you know how I know that? Because if that was true, why would John be writing a letter? If it was true that the Spirit teaches us everything, meaning everything about the Bible, you know, then I don't need John to write me a letter to tell me that the Spirit teaches me everything. That would be contradictory. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Why would Paul have written so many letters? The Spirit was going to teach everything. Why is Paul writing all these letters? Seems like a big waste of time. The paper was expensive back then. Everything in this context goes back again to verses 24 and 26. In those things related to distinguishing a false gospel or false teacher from a true one. That's our context here. If we've truly put our faith in Jesus, we have an anointing from God's Spirit, and anointing just means the Spirit in us. That if we listen to that Spirit, He will help us know when someone is speaking the truth about Jesus as we received it, or if that person is speaking falsehood about Jesus. Because the deceiver is always going to claim something special, something different, something you didn't know. Well, see, you couldn't have known this when you got saved. God revealed this to me and me alone to tell you. Okay, listen, listen, listen. I, I mean, and I, I realize people people fall prey to this good, pe good people, okay, good people who love Jesus. 
fall prey to this whole bit of God told me something special and I'm here to tell you that he didn't tell anybody else. When, God, when someone comes to you and says, God told me something special that he didn't tell anybody else, I don't care if it's in person or on TV or whatever it is, run away. Run far away. Okay? God isn't telling somebody something special that he hasn't told nobody else. And they're the only person that's ever going to be able to reveal this. And so you better stay close because it was, it was a mystery for 2,000 years. But suddenly, I'm such a special snowflake that God told me and nobody else ever in 2,000 years. See, when I say it like that, you're always looking at me like, well, of course not. That's the most absurd thing possible, right? People fall for this all the time. Don't fall for it. I know you won't. You know why? Because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in you. That will teach you not everything, not torsions, that's for sure. Well, maybe you, not me. I mean, maybe Stacy can find that. Right? Is this not the worst part of the sciences or engineering? It's the math, right? I mean, it's like, ugh, yuck. Anyway. John says that the deceiver is always going to claim some special anointing or some special knowledge. John's saying you don't need any of that. We need to listen to the Spirit of God in us, who is the ultimate teacher of truth. And he will help us avoid those deceivers. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 16. When he's talking, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he says in John 16, starting in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what's the all truth here? What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the truth of who Jesus is. The Spirit is always going to point us to Jesus. The Spirit's always going to point us to Jesus. What happens with the deceiver and the false teacher? They always point to themselves. God told me. You've got to send me a thousand dollars to plant the seed Everybody knows you're supposed to send me a thousand dollars to the world where you come. Clearly in hesitation, chapter 6, verse 8. The deceiver is always going to point to something or some, someone else. Most of the time, himself. God's Spirit says no. And points us back to the real Jesus all the time because the Spirit will glorify Jesus. And if the Spirit is glorified, if you think something, if it's not Jesus being glorified, it ain't the Spirit doing the glorification. It's something else. Okay. John moves on then and talks about the other defense against false teaching, which is what John calls abiding. Abiding in Jesus. Verse, second part of verse 27 through verse 29. Just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John, remember, remember John reminded us it's the last hour 
then sometime in the consummation of the ages is going to come, right? Because he talked about that earlier on in the chapter. Last hour, you know, you know, that sort of thing. Eventually, the consummation of the ages is going to come. The Lord's going to return, and we're going to stand before the Lord. That's what it's right. As we said, when he appears, we may have confidence. He's going to appear sometime. We're going to stand before him. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Ooh, wait, what? what? Hmm? Now that we talk enough about this fact, our lives will be judged someday. Now, not in reference to sin, as if we're in danger of, of losing eternal life or something like that. I mean, John's writing to believers here, right? He says, you believers, little children, you're going to stand before Jesus someday. But how we live matters to God. And there's going to be some form of eternal rewards, consequences, whatever, to how we live today. Not, not, none of the New Testament writers go into great depth on that. But it is important to remember, we will stand before Jesus. So, as R.C. Sproul liked to say, right now counts forever. What we do in this life matters. And so the best way, according to John here, to be ready for that time is to abide in him, to stay close to Jesus. To abide, or as some version, maybe your version you're using, translates it as remain in him. So we're never asking the word abide. Bible. I like to think of Velcro. Velcro is awesome. So useful. When George Demestrel got the idea for Velcro, he was trying to figure out why the burrs kept sticking to his pants. That's where the idea for Velcro came Now, he uses Velcro all the time. Right? We use Velcro to make two things abide together. To remain together. To stick Close. When he's talking about abiding, think Velcro. You can't stick to Jesus like Velcro. You can decide which one's the book that you want to do by now. John used that term back in verse 24 of this same chapter. He said, Let what you heard from the beginning, the gospel, right? What you heard from the beginning, the gospel about Jesus, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. He really likes this word. Now here's John talking about the truth of the gospel of Jesus' person and work, right? His life, his death, his resurrection. That's what they heard. That's what brought them and us to faith. And he cautions us not to stray from the basic truth about Jesus, which is exactly what false teachers and heretics and deceivers try to get us to do. We are to stay close. We are to stick to the gospel. We're to Velcro to the gospel. So John has made it clear. We're to stick closely to what brought us to faith in the first place. And then, through the presence of God's Spirit in us, we have what we need to be discerning about what is being taught about Jesus. And finally, he tells us, we need to be ready to stand before our Lord someday, right? That's what he means. He's been up here. Which, make no mistake, we all will. To be ready for that, we need to stick close to Jesus. To abide in him. 
lifeblood of our lives. This is what Jesus himself tells us, that if we are to abide in him, we are to bear fruit for him, then his word matters. And when we bear fruit for him, we certainly are not going to have anything to worry about when we meet him face to face. If you think about this, abiding then in Jesus, by abiding in his commandments and his word, is a solution to deceptive teachers and to the temptations of the flesh, eyes, and life. It's the sure way to know and do God's will. It all just flows out of that. It's, you go through this whole chapter, and John's just basically kind of coming at the same thing from multiple different ways. But a relationship, an abiding relationship with Jesus flows out of actually living according to and through his word with the empowerment of his spirit in each of us. That's where he's going. That's what he wants us to do. Look at what Jesus says. Look at how Jesus lives. And do that. Abiding in Jesus starts with abiding in his word. You know, have you thought about how incredibly we are. I'll tell you how incredibly fortunate we are in so many ways. And I realize, you know, we, we live in a time. I, I have a Bible. A Bible right here. That literally just stays underneath the pulpit. So I, I have enough Bibles that I literally. Can you imagine a thousand years ago how people, Christians, wish they could have had their own Bible. I have so many Bibles that I, I keep one, and it's a nice one. You can't read it on my glasses, but it's nice. <laughs> right? Leather. Excuse for us not to know God's word and his commands because we 